Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh... On today's show, we have Dr. Victoria Dunkley, an integrative child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. We're going to talk to her about electronic screen syndrome, what it might be doing to your kids, and how to fix it. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the House of Pot. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. Hey, guys. How are we? We're good. Right, good. Joe? Hell yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Joe's got a new stack of stickers, so he's super excited. So let's explain what that means. What What is the sticker business you're talking about? We got stickers. House of Pot stickers? <laughs> House of Pot stickers. Yeah, we do. With the snake on it, which is a scriptlet. I can never say it. The problem why I think caduceus, which is the two snake symbol, which mm-hmm. is what everybody thinks of, the wings on top with the two snakes, why that has become the symbol of medicine and healthcare and ambulances, I think is because it's easier to say. Because caduceus is easy to say. That's true. But our sticker, and which is sa- the House of Pod emblem designed by Nigel Sussman, who is an amazing graphic designer, is the rod of Asclepius. Asclepius. A S. C-L-E-P-I-U-S. I'm looking at the word and I'm still having a hard time <laughs> saying it. Say. Asclepius, it in Greek mythology is known as the staff of Asclepius and uh, the serpent entwined rod that was wielded by the Greek god as I'm reading right now, Asclepius. Uh, deity, or means God, right. associated with healing and medicine. And that's our new emblem and it's on a sticker and it's dope. Yeah, and we are sending it out. So send us your email. Um, sorry, your home address. You can do it offline through Facebook or Twitter, Instagram. Just let us know. We do need your address to send it to you. So sorry for that violation of your personal space. We but, don't um, share it with anybody. But it's funny. No matter how hard you try, I've gone to dictionary.com and done that whole thing where you can press um, a record a button and then it will say, let me hear the way the word should be said. I've done this 10 times yeah. and I still cannot remember <laughs> how to say Asclepius. Maybe it will be known as the House of Pod staff. Rod. That would be House of Pod Rod. Yes. Nice. Boom. Okay, Love so um, uh, before we get to this listener email that I have, I want to read to you guys. I want to ask you guys a question and I would love to hear listener feedback on this too, but have you, Joe or Lizzie, ever been to a restaurant and sent food back to the kitchen for whatever reason. Have you ever done that? Yes. Really? With great, great reluctance. And, and trepidation. And trepidation. I'm, you know, the fear thing is one thing, but I also have this immense 
like just anxiety about seeming like a dick, like an entitled shitty person. And right. I should get over it. Cause like if your chicken is raw, for example, okay. I went to this fancy restaurant in New York city, Babo, a Mario Batali restaurant mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for like my grandma's 70th birthday. It was like a big deal. Yeah. And I got this quail or some shit, some chicken variant. Yeah. It was it's like a Cornish hen, but right. Yeah, I was eating it and I was like, maybe this is how it's supposed to be. Cause this mm-hmm. is a fancy yeah, restaurant, Totally. but it was pink poultry. Mm. And thank goodness, you know, my grandma was like, you are not eating that. But I was, you know, I, I felt like an yeah. asshole because I also felt really unsophisticated. Like I right. didn't Maybe know. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe this is like right. sashimi for chicken, which right. by the way, actually is a thing and I don't recommend it. But right. yeah. I, was, I was probably like 20, not like super worldly, but I just, I didn't know. So I felt like self-conscious and ashamed and like a little just scared. Right. Right. Joe, yourself? I think it happens to everybody where you get the wrong dish. Right, oh, right. That's darn. different. That's I, different. Even that wasn't then, very fun, huh? the, no. The the truth of it is, like, but do you I, say something? I, I still actually usually take it. I'll be like, but that's not what I ordered. But the, uh, that's fine. That's okay. If it's something it's I still fine. like, fine. But if it's like some weird fish and I ordered steak, that that's happened. that's totally reasonable. You're not yeah. sending it back. You're they made a, a mistake. Yeah. No, never sent back food because it was like undercooked. Or Why don't food. you send back food? Let me ask you that. Because you're a hundred percent. Sure, it's, that they're going to spit in it, right? No, <laughs> I, no. But it's really what Lizzie was saying, where I just, I'm not a confrontational person when it comes mm-hmm. to that, at least. And uh, yeah. No, I hear you. I'm, nor am I. Like, I almost probably to a fault in dining. Like, I'm probably, I'm getting better at it now, but I've probably been too, like, deferent to, like, the, the wait staff, you know, sometimes. But in this particular situation, Someone had ordered something, and it came out exactly as described in the menu, but I don't think the person really read what was in the menu, and so they did. They were surprised. It was like a side accompaniment or uh, garnish yeah, or something. Yeah, names are being withheld to protect <laughs> these, the, the uh, not-so-innocent. But they were like, oh, no, this wasn't what I wanted, and they sent it back. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, boy, that's... One, I'm like, you, that's kind of your bad yeah. if you just didn't read it yeah. right. That's on you. Eat right. it. Right. You know, unless you're deathly allergic to it, right. eat it. But yeah, if they're taking it back to an undisclosed location where you can't see what they're doing to that food, yeah. I personally am like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That food's staying with me now. You're not, yeah. Or I'm coming back there with you to see what happens right. to it. <laughs> I'm going to come back to the kitchen. The other issue is that when you send food back, is like I think sometimes it gets thrown away and I also have a really bad guilt complex with respect to <laughs> wasted food. You know, it just we talked about this on the show a long time ago that you really have to use cues in a restaurant, like the bathroom, for example, and the wait staff and and like the way that they're put together right. and, and hand washing and things like that. You you know, there's health scores yeah. which are meaningful. But there are also other cues. Like when I've gone to the bathroom and I see like exposed wire and dripping faucets and right. like toilet paper all over the ground. That to me is a huge turnoff. There's restaurants that I won't go back to because yeah, yeah. of Agreed. that bad experience. You know, yeah. We talked to uh, James Siaboot, the guy who owns the restaurant Comey in Oakland. We had him on an episode. We talked to him about some of this stuff. Because that bathroom is the one thing that you can see. Yeah. That's like one thing that they allow you to see. Yeah. You're not going to the back to see the kitchen. If, unless, <laughs> unless you are. Unless you're <laughs> right. following your food to the back. <laughs> right. And like if they're going to do that sort of thing, if that's how it's going to look there, imagine what they're doing to the places you can't see. Right. Where you're not allowed to yeah. see. So anyways, I would never, yeah. 
never send back food for that purpose. Right. <laughs> Not Italian, okay. just you. Know. Okay. We uh, have an email. We have, would love uh, for people to email us all things hop questions at gmail.com and this one comes from sarah palmer phillips and she said it was okay to use her name so thus i'm using her name i will uh it's it's a really great email it's a bit lengthy so i may not read the whole thing uh maybe i'll ask her if we can post it because i think it's a really important email but it's certainly something i want to discuss so here we go hi house of pod folks i discovered this podcast late but am almost caught up. I've been hearing a call for how to be a better doctor and have many thoughts, but we'll limit it to one big one. As a quick aside, Lizzie and I have been doing this like recurrent, like how to be a better patient, and we keep putting out this call for how to be a better doctor to sort of even it out and so we don't feel so bad about the condescending manner in which we do the how to be a better patient segment. And it's very uneven. We are definitely, the tally is totally all about how to be a better patient. So we love how to be a better doctor emails and questions. Okay, so if you're busy and can't read the whole email, I read the whole email. In summary, doctors need to understand slash remember that someone with a mental illness can still get an unrelated physical illness and we do see the judgment slash stigmata. So then in this email, she goes on to explain that she has bipolar 2, social anxiety. She's working with a psychiatrist and that's going along pretty well. But on more than one occasion, she's gone to see a doctor for a physical problem and she really feels that stigma. Like people aren't looking for that physical problem. They see the mental problem first and that's it. She relates to an ENT issue in particular. So I, I think that's a, let me, let me actually skip to the end of her email, which I think is really good too. Your show makes it sound like you're all very accepting and understanding of mental illness and substance abuse. So your patients likely don't deal with this, but I wanted to share anyways. It's good. It's a good reminder for everyone. Us mentally ill millennials are actually human. Thanks for making a great show for us medically interested non-doctors. So Sarah Phillips, that's an excellent email. Thank you so much. Yeah. Lizzie, what are your thoughts? There's there's a lot of things I have to say. Um, one thing is, is that if you have bipolar, or for example, this comes up a lot, I think, with our transgender patients, and I see it on the problem list, and I know we have your chart. We look at your chart. That's our job is to do our homework, right? Whether it's five minutes before or a week before, it doesn't matter. When the patient comes in and tells me about their stomach upset, I actually don't know the answer to this because I think it changes from patient to patient. Do you want me to say, I'm going to go through your medication list anyway. I'm going to say, so you're on blood pressure medicine, testosterone, acid blocking medicine. Do you want me to be totally cursory and just skip over it? Or do you want me to talk about the thing that really probably defines you, like your bipolar disorder or your transgender issues? Because I don't want to dismiss it and ignore it. But I also don't want to make it the theme of our conversation about your GI issues. Do you know what I mean? It's like acknowledge yeah. it and give it a voice and attention or just act like it's just every other thing on your problem list, like heartburn. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I, I, I hear that. I think in my, my impression of these situations is that all these patients want to know that you've reviewed their chart. I think that's pretty obvious and that you know their full medical history, but they don't see that problem they're going to see us for in particular say if it's a gi question as being related to those other issues whether it be right. sort of gender dysphoria or whether it be a mood disorder etc you know they they aren't there for that purpose so unless i feel maybe one of the medications they're taking regarding those issues directly relates to the thing we're talking about and sometimes it does i, I don't focus on that yeah, I don't focus, but I'm just saying, do I just kind of go over it really quickly to know that I'm not paying attention to that thing 
that might be the distraction that you think mm. I'm going to come in with this bias that you're bipolar. So would you rather me not really talk about your bipolar history? Because I could say, it. when did you start your lithium? You know, and then all of a sudden that person might have a lot of self-consciousness about their lithium. And then they're going to think, oh, this doctor just thinks all my problems are related to bipolar. And that is not, you know what I mean? There's, there's a subtlety to that. And I don't know. This is, again, the art of medicine and reading patients and trying to understand what it is they feel they need to be heard about. Joe, what are your thoughts? I think the doctor definitely needs to ask those questions. There are medical scientific reasons for asking those. The, the line that gets you don't want to cross is when you um, start tying the mental illness to all their physical ailments and saying, well, it's probably just because you're upset or... And it, as a patient, that op often comes off as like a cop out. Like they don't know what's wrong with me, so they're just blaming it on my mood. Right. Or they're that's not listening. When, to that's me. when, yeah, they're not listening. They're just assuming because I'm crazy or or have a problem. And that's where patients, I probably rightfully so, get upset. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's a it's a tough line for um, a doctor to walk sometimes because certainly mood disorders, stress, anxiety, any psychiatric issues, they can tie into physical stuff as well. I mean, there's plenty of things in the GI system that Lizzie and I study where stress can make whatever problems going on worse. So it has to be accounted for. But patients are very attuned to being dismissed, very attuned to a dismissive nature of a doctor. Yeah. I mean, they... they I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from patients when they come to us for a problem and we address it and they're like, you know, I was really upset because I brought this up to some other doctor and they told me it was all in my head. And I'll talk to them and I'll be like, look, stress, anxiety, all these things play in yeah. to any health issue, particularly in the gut. But it doesn't mean you're making it up. It doesn't mean it's not real. And I think that really helps patients a lot. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of ways to show patients that you respect them and that you're taking them seriously without having to, you know, sugarcoat the other things in their history, without having to bypass yeah. it. I think it's stress, it's mood disorder, it's other diseases, and, and medications are a really important part of that process, um, conversation. And maybe it's good for, maybe the advice for patients and for doctors is just to say it. I know you have bipolar disorder, I know you're on lithium, I don't think that's what's going on, but why don't you tell me more about it? You know what I mean? Like... Perfect. acknowledge the elephant in the room because that person might have a lot of, like I said, self-consciousness and apprehension and maybe triggered by those things. Great so idea. I think acknowledging it is a good idea. Joe, have, do you feel like that's ever happened to you? Do you feel like a doctor's ever dismissed you out of turn and said this is like in your head because of this other stuff I see? God, it's tough. I've, I've had doctors definitely, you know, just not listen or not take me seriously. I don't know if it was linked to anything mental though, you know, yeah. um, more along the lines of, well, I've seen this before. I don't think there's anything wrong with you. And then it turns out there is something wrong with me because I know there is. And then there actually is. So, right. yeah. but I don't know if I've never had someone just, just blame it on my, you know, my stress or something like that personally. Yeah. 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 But you're, you're tentative. You, you notice when you feel like you're being dismissed by a medical oh, of course. professional. Yeah. Of course. And this yeah. is again about connecting with a patient and having rapport and listening whether or not you think they're super healthy or super sick, you know? Well, Sarah Phillips, thank you so much. That's an excellent email, and it's a great reminder for all of us, Lizzie and I included. So thank you for that. Uh, if you have any other questions, like Lizzie said, we're at hopquestions at gmail.com, or you can call in at 408-444-6623. Find us on Facebook. Find us at The House of Pod, one word, at Twitter and Instagram. We got stickers, so if you got questions, 
send us, or if you just want a sticker, send us your your uh, address and we will send you a sticker. We've sent them as far as Canada so far, and that seems to have worked out. So you keep letting us know and we'll keep sending them to you guys. Coming up next, we have Dr. Victoria Dunkley, integrative psychiatrist and author, and she's going to talk to us about electronic screen time and what it may be doing to your kids. Stay tuned. On today's show, we have child psychiatrist, screen time expert, and author of Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time. Dr. Victoria Dunkley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Can you tell us about you know what your expertise is in, this underdiagnosed unrecognized issue. We all talk about screen time and kids, but you've coined the term ESS, electronic screen time syndrome. Is that correct? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, it's electronic screen syndrome. So I coined the term because I was seeing so many kids who were being misdiagnosed and a lot of them were being put on medication or receiving services that weren't working. And I was realizing that it was really because they were overstimulated from screen time. So I had, you know, back in the early 2000s was when I first started looking at this um, area. And I was seeing kids who, who lived in group homes. Um, and, you know, they all had histories of trauma. So they all had histories of abuse and neglect. So they had a very sensitive stress response. And some of them lived, you know, on site. So we could see if they played a video game, we could literally see them acting out afterwards. And in one of the houses, they, the staff agreed to remove the video games. And then lo and behold, within a month, we saw a reduction in incident reports uh, by 30%. So that was pretty big. And then from there, I just started implementing that intervention of no video games, no screen time with my private patients who had other disorders, you know, whether it was ADHD or anxiety or depression, and it seemed to work across the board. So I started to realize it was really that the screens were putting their body into a state of stress, and then that, that stress response was, was manifesting as all these different psychiatric disorders. So you think that we might be misdiagnosing teenagers and kids with ADD, ADHD, or mood disorders, when they're really just responding to electronic stimulation. Um, exactly. Is, is this uh, controversial? Are there um, child psychiatrists who um, disagree with you on this one? Has this been a point of contention? I don't think so. I, I feel like when people really, when they hear what I have to say and kind of the rationale behind it, as well as the research and, and my work, um, most people, it makes sense to them. You know, I think we everyone's kind of aware that there's been a huge increase in these diagnoses. There's increases in the use of medication. There's an increase in the use of special education resources, um, disability filings. Um, there's been a decrease in um, some of the IQ, or, you know, cognitive testing scores and things like that, as well as reading scores. 
So everyone is kind of aware that, you know, something's happening to our kids and this is environmentally, like this is the, obviously the biggest change we've had in the, you know, the past couple decades. So I think when, when people really kind of hear the, the whole rationale, it makes sense. Yeah. I don't okay. think people really, I think what they're not getting though is they're underestimating the, the, the impact of it. So I think some people, you know, a lot of people think, well, they just need to cut down, but really they really need to have a full break because once the nervous system gets revved up and in that state of hyperarousal, then it really needs to have all that stimulation removed for it to kind of settle back down and for the brain to rest and get deep sleep and kind of reset everything. Yeah. So it's like, so ESS, electronic screen syndrome, sounds a little bit like cocaine, um, you know, in the effects that it right. has on the brain and that stimulation. In the short term, you can, you know, I think we're all familiar with a kid who is playing for a long time. And then when they stop playing, they have a meltdown and they're either crying or they're, you know, highly irritable. Um, and that was, you know, that was one of the things I was seeing that was really similar to when we, you know, back in the day, we used to use short acting stimulants for ADHD. And that's exactly what the parents would describe that the kid was like overly focused when they're, you know, on the medication and then it would wear off really abruptly and then they would be a mess. So it's just kind of like, it's just artificial stimulation that we're constantly throwing at them. And then we're expecting them to be able to tolerate both the stimulation and the withdrawal of the stimulation. And it's just not, it's not realistic that kids could, you know, tolerate that kind of unnatural stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. That's some real black mirror type disturbing stuff you're describing. Let me ask you, is this across the board with all screen time? Is it, is there certain types of screen time that are worse than others? And are there certain types of screen time, like interactive things, educational things that are better? Yeah. Because everyone does think like, oh, if I watch TV with my kid and we talk about it, or I play the video game with the kid and I can make it a learning point. I think a lot of people do think that that's better. Right. Right. So, so basically the, the best predictor of whether there's going to be problems is, is the total amount of screen time. So lifetime use as well as earlier exposure. So the younger that they're exposed and the longer they're exposed and the more, you know, daily use and all that, then they're at higher risk in general, no matter what kind of screen time they're doing. So to me, and that's kind of what I see as well, um, is that really that's the best predictor is, is how much they're doing it and what kind of underlying vulnerabilities do they have. So that said, I think um, the biggest difference that I see is between passive screen time, like just watching TV or a movie, and interactive screen time, which includes, you know, everything from texting to video games and social media to even sc scrolling through a phone looking at pictures or something, or, you know, and, of course, to Internet use as well. Um, so all of those activities, they're releasing little hits of dopamine, you know, repeatedly. Right. And I think everybody can kind of relate to, like, when you watch TV, you, could, you know, you're more likely to fall asleep. If you're on your, your phone or your laptop, you can stay up really late, and, you know, people stay up to all hours of the night very easily. Interactive screen time is causing way more problems with focus and mood and behavior versus TV. And I realized this because I would take them off of everything. And if they watched a little bit of TV, they were okay. But if they did a little bit of video games, it seemed like it didn't work. 
you know, this seems like it's true for adults as well. I mean, this dopamine release response that you get with like Twitter, for example, you're constantly checking to see right. who responds, who's liking your pictures on Instagram, etc. It's like the brain needs that. And if it doesn't get it at some point, it is, it can clearly see the addiction. That's pretty obvious, I think. But let me ask you about a specific sort of question regarding screen time, because something I see very commonly, something Lizzie and I uh, see commonly in the city here is, you know, people want to go out to a dinner, they take their kids out to a dinner, or they're at home, they want to get their kids to eat, feeding the kids while letting them watch something seems to be a pretty common thing, even amongst families that don't necessarily give their kids that much screen time. Is there any data that you know of regarding like dietary habits, eating and screen time? Is that, is that an adverse, uh, is there any adverse data out there that we know of? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot of data on that, actually. I mean, people just tend to eat more in general if they're looking at a screen. But there's other studies that show that um, if you're, if, if someone uses a computer for an hour versus reading for an hour, afterwards they, they'll eat a lot more. Um, so it, it seems like there's some kind of, it's, it's, it's messing with the brain signaling for, you know, satiety and, Realizing when you're full, um, as well as obviously you're sedentary, you know, when you're on a screen. But it's, it, there seem to be more physiological impacts than just the sedentary part. And we know that with um, looking at metabolic syndrome and things like blood sugar and weight, that, it's, that there's a, a relationship between screen time and all of those issues, regardless of or independent of physical activity level. So, and I've seen this too. Like I've seen a lot of teens who are physically active. They're really good athletes, but their cholesterol is going up or they have mm-hmm. a pot belly. You know, they just, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely affects the metabolism. Oh, wow. yeah. But aside from that, the, the psych, psychosocial impacts of um, dinner time, there's a lot of studies on dinner time about eating dinner together and that kids have better grades and have better, um, you know, scores on well-being and, do you know go farther in school? All of those things. So I think when your hat, when everyone's eyes are watching something, when you're eating, you're you're losing that opportunity to really connect. And and we know that that connection is really what um, is that you know the biggest factor for mental health and physical health. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, we do. We talk a lot on the show about you know as as doctors, Kaveh and I, connecting with our patients, and how the culture of medicine can put up all these obstacles and. There's all these opportunities to break that connection, you know, and obviously some of this stuff projects, you know, maybe a bad, a bad future of understanding and community. But do you see an overlap with this electronic screen syndrome for these kids and maybe for their future work that inevitably will involve a computer? I mean, we talk about the electronic health record, like bringing us down and taking us away from patients. Like, are there advantages for these kids to be? so adept with screens and computers weighed against this social, like, you know, lack of connection. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's, that's like every parent's question, but I think, you know, I, what, one of my big messages is that it's really the, the brain's frontal lobe and the health of the frontal lobe and how integrated it is that determines success. It determines executive functioning, emotional regulation, empathy, all of these things are what predict success. So if your frontal lobe is healthy, then you're going to be good at any field you go into, whether that's technology-related or not. 
So, you know, I see a lot of families who are have this dream that their child is going to be a, you know, a coder or something or some kind of computer yeah. mm-hmm. science engineer, and um, and they're and so they're trying to introduce it early and often to make sure that their kid is ahead of the pack. Yeah. But meanwhile, the kid can't focus because they're overstimulated, and they can't sleep because they're anxious, and um, you know, they're not they're not going to perform that that way. So, so what you're saying is maybe delay it a little bit. The total immersion in the screen time is right. probably a good strategy. That's what all of us really say. That's the big message is delay, delay, delay. Because, you know, a, a healthy frontal lobe is what, you know, is what determines self-discipline as well. So it, it's, it's, they'll have better screen habits as well as all the other habits, you know, if they're, if they're kept off the screen as long as possible. Yeah. Gosh, this is such eye-opening stuff to hear. Um, you know, what do pediatricians really recommend as far as screen time, and does that differ between adults uh, versus children? Well, for children, the official recommendation right now is, you know, zero to two is no screen time. I think two to six is one hour or less, and then six to 12 is, or maybe past that, it's one to two hours. Um, and I think for teens, they just kind of changed it. But um, I think even the American Academy of Pediatrics is kind of not really looking at all the data. When you see with the committee, the research the committee actually looked at, they they looked at some educational things, um, but they didn't look at the mental health piece very much. And there's, you know, there's probably a thousand studies on just that, that aspect alone. So... Um, I think they, they, that needs to be reworked, and they're, I think they're afraid to really say what the re- recommendations should be because they think there's going to be a huge backlash and mm-hmm. that, you know, parents, that's the way we live now. And <laughs> Yeah, parents would be like, you come raise just, my kids. <laughs> I could see that. I could see that being a controversial subject. With, with all the research you've done and what you're seeing and the trends you're seeing in our culture, are you just terrified of the future? Do you like see this dystopian sort of like <laughs> nightmare scape of like kids constantly and adults just attached to their their phones and their social media and their technology? Or do you see that there there's some hope? I mean, I do think it's it it it, it can be really disturbing to think about, especially when you think about the screens in school and all the different issues that come up. Um Actually, when I was writing the book, when I was writing the school chapter, some of the stuff I wasn't aware of until I was writing the book and researching more, and I, I was getting stomach aches and mm-hmm. just I was I was just like horrified, you know, because um, it is a very it gets very dark. Um, yeah. But I think it just in the last two years, I would say there's been a there's been an explosion of research, but there's also been an increase in public awareness. Um, I think people. When I first started talking about this, you know, people were like, what are you talking about? And I felt like I was totally alone saying, you know, what I was saying. But now there's more more and more people are kind of recognizing what's going on. And um, pendulum swinging the other way a little bit. And interestingly, um, some of that is occurring in Silicon Valley because they're, they, they know what's going on. They know. Yeah. Right. We hear that these guys, the the Steve Jobs of the world never let their kids touch like screens um, because they know how it's designed to be addictive and et cetera. I don't know if that's totally true or not, but it makes sense. 
And you, uh, I mean, you also point out, you know, that you were alone, but now you're not. I think there's lots of data in the last, I think, 15 years, right? That in 2000, was it, where the number of people who owned some iPhone or smartphone outnumbered those who didn't. And the levels of at least reported depression and anxiety were clearly directly related to that increased volume of smartphones. This is like, I think, I think unrefuted data. Right. And including the suicide rate, there was a huge, you know, it's kind of slowly creeping up. And then all of a sudden there was a huge increase, um, I think right around 2010. Um, so, yeah, I think and I think that kind of a, that kind of data and that research is, is being more accepted now instead of people arguing against it. So I think people are becoming more aware. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what I think one of the most powerful things that can happen is when this, the schools really realize that the kids do better with without the cell phones in the classroom and without you being doing everything on the computer academically. Um, we know that their scores go up and we know that kids are less distracted and the teachers, you know, like it better. So there, there was just a high school recently. A lot of the elementary schools are, are doing that now but and middle schools. But recently there was a public school in, um, I think, San Mateo that banned cell phones. So it was the first time a big public school did that. And, um, and the, you know, of course, they had, they're having great effects from it. Yeah, they're trying to ban, I think, uh, vaping. So maybe cell phones will be next on well, their list. You know, that's that's interesting because <laughs> yeah. like these students have their phones with them all the time and then they have to at least go through this period of time like intermittent fasting for food is a question we, we get a lot and, and as gastroenterologists. I mm. mean, would you describe this as sort of an electronic fasting and do you see benefits of that fasting? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I call it. It's, a, it's an electronic fast. And to you know, if if someone's really dysregulated, that you know they really need several weeks for the dop- you know the dopamine receptors get desensitized. So it takes it takes a while for them to um, to get resensitized. It takes a while for your stress hormones to renormalize. So it takes several weeks for all those shifts to really occur. So that's why I always say at least four weeks, and you know a lot of times we go longer than that. So if somebody really needs to be reset. Um, to have any long-lasting effects, it needs to be at least that long. But if it, if at least it was during the day, um, if you're reducing several hours of screen time, that's huge. And how are you following that? Are you how are you checking this? Are you checking like serum levels of these kids, like before and after, or is this MRI studies, or is this theoretical? How how are you following that? Before and after, I would wish I could on all these kids, but um, there was a study recently, um, a, a, a research center that, that imaged kids before and after a 12-week wilderness program, and they were all, you know, internet or technology-addicted kids. Um, and some of the changes, like, you know, that from the before where they were showing, like, places in the frontal lobe that were um, very quiet or, there, you know, there seemed to be atrophy or things weren't lighting up as they should be, those reversed by within 12 weeks. Wow. So I, I think it's probably even sooner than that. But yeah. Um, so just, that's, that's huge data for people to yeah. point to when, you know, because, you know, everyone thinks, well, it could just be that they're a placebo effect or because they're getting out more. But really, we know that it's, it's physically changing the brain. 
Yeah, that's um again, that's an interesting question. Like, what is it? Is it the benefits of nature, or is it the removal of the device? But clearly, we know it's both. But it's hard to quantify because there's both. definitely data yeah. about what is, is it? Tree bathing? That term of literally kind of like meditating, just being out in nature. That's also mm-hmm. a documented phenomenon. Right. And that's huge. Obviously, they're going to, you know, part of what we watch for is, are, do they start playing more creatively? Do they start playing more physically? They, t- they tend to touch each other more. Um, the parents are touching the kids more. All of those things change the brain. Yeah. Um, and of course, they're sleeping better, which also improves mental health. Right. But some of the kids I, I see, you know, were only playing like once a week. And even, and they were physically active and they were in sports and they were getting nature exposure, everything. And even with those kids, you would see an improvement. So it's definitely the screen time itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. As well as all the other things that come, you know, it just, it is, that's why it works so well is because all those things have kind of a virtuous cycle. So you also write about um, and talk about, monitoring your screen time. So now most, I think, phones or smartphones are able to track your screen time. So is that something you recommend? I've definitely spoken to a pediatrician who has looked at her patient's screen time. She'll say, I'm not going to touch your phone. You just click on this and show me your screen time. Do you, is that like a new recommendation? Is that something you would recommend for parents oh. and pediatricians to check as part of, you know, your vital signs? And how school kind of part of the routine? I think that's a good way to do it. If if there's a way to track it that way, just from their phone. Um, and I think it depends on the family. Like I know some families that you you know for younger kids that have used Disney Circle and have been able to track all of their devices on one app. Um, you know the usage, including TV and things like that. Yeah. And I know that for some families works really well, and it was that it's eye-opening for the parents too, because they don't realize how much they're on. Yeah. Um, I do think it how it you know it can help some people when they're when they see how much they're actually doing, and then they kind of make it into a game. Like I'm going to try to decrease it by this much, and then this much. But then other people they get the data, and they just it just you know goes in one area or the other. So yeah. No, it I think it depends. If it works, obviously, I think it's a good thing to do. It's like a different kind of video game, which would be a nice mind yeah. game to trick kids into using less. So it, it sounds like the bottom right. line is less and less and delay and delay, and that clearly will have lots of benefits. Right. Right, right. Well, Dr. Victoria Dunkley, integrative psychiatrist, author, thank you so much for coming on. You've given us lots of great information information for parents, future parents, aunts, uncles, babysitters, pediatricians, and pretty much anyone who uses devices. I'm sure my children are hoping that my wife does not hear this episode. <laughs> um, where, where can people find you and more information on this? So my website is drdunkley.com. It's D-R-D-U-N-C-K-L-E-Y.com. Um, and I have a free email course on there. It's kind of the nuts and bolts of the, the reset called Save Your Child's Brain. And then there's also a new webinar we produce on there. And then the book really is what goes into more details. Um, and, and where can they find that book? As far as the physiology, that's, you know, Amazon, any, anywhere online or um, in bookstores. Actually, a lot of libraries carry it too. 
And again, the title of that book is Reset Your Child's Brain, A Four-Week Plan to End Meltdowns, Raise Grades, and Boost Social Skills by Reversing the Effects of Electronic Screen Time. Dr. Dunkley, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. I know what you mean, but I know what you mean. Which part? I don't know. Which? Wait, talk a little bit more. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Oh, shoot. Now it's cutting out. It's cutting out. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All antidotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible.